Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 263 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new Hulu series, The Handmaid's Tale, based on the novel by Margaret Atwood. And this will involve spoilers for the entire first season, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, who you may remember from our panel on Star Trek Beyond back in episode 214. She's a Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and crafts laser-cut jewelry and soap with swear words inside. She lives in Northern California with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Then next up, we've got Charlie Locke. Her writing has appeared in The Rumpus and McSweeney's, and she currently covers culture and photography for Wired.com. Check out her Handmaid's Tale recap posts, including Episode 4, Revolution Start with Graffiti and Food, and Episode 6, Oops, I Created a Sexist Tyranny and Now I Have to Live in It. So, Charlie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Beth Elderkin. She's a staff writer for io9 and will soon be producing video content for the site. Check out her posts about The Handmaid's Tale, including eight questions we really want answered in The Handmaid's Tale second season and ten real laws straight out of The Handmaid's Tale. Along with Abby Kindler, she co-hosts Once Upon a Timing, an episodic podcast about ABC's fairy tale drama Once Upon a Time. So, Beth, welcome to the show. Under his eye. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start off with Sarah and have you just tell us a bit about what were your expectations going into this show? Were you looking forward to it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, obviously, with the political climate the way it is, I was almost... Uh, well, no, not almost. I was frightened that uh, it would be a little bit too intense for me. I mean, lately I've been, you know, rereading Harry Potter and things that are comforting <laughs> so that I can take a break from what's going on in the news. And so I knew that Handmaid's Tale was going to be very, you know, generally triggering for women. And it was going to just be the kind of thing that, you know, is painful to watch. I knew it was going to make me cry. And so it was like one of those things where I was like, oh, God, I'm glad they're doing this. But also, oh, God. <laughs> so I was very pleased that, you know, they did uh, justice to it. Did you have any sort of background with the book or other adapt earlier adaptations of it? Just the book. I mean, so when did you first read it or like, is it a, how, how much do you like the book? Uh, a couple of years ago, I recently reread it um, after I watched the series because I wanted to, you know, compare. It had been a couple of years and I, I was fuzzy on the details. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was very different um, and, and, and very much the same in a lot of ways. But uh, the main thing is just the difference of feeling like you're inside of the head of somebody who is you know, living in that world and very much in that space and in, in many ways all very beaten down by it. Whereas in the series, you know, you, you get some of that sense, but she's also a little bit more, um, you know, rebelling and, and more into fighting it. So there are, I think, benefits to both sides. How about Charlie? What was, what were kind of your uh, expectations going into the show? Yeah, I mean, I similarly was um, both excited to watch it and pretty anxious. You know, I, <laughs> I, I feel the parallels a lot without needing to be reminded of it. So I was a, a little nervous that it wouldn't really be a fun viewing experience. And I was really, um, relieved to have the show, um, uh, feel so relevant, but also be really 
enjoyable to watch. Um, I, I had read the book, you know, I either read it in high school or I was supposed to read it in high <laughs> school. And that, you know, I think a lot of people that's kind of their, their, it's one of those books. And, um, I, so I hadn't read it for a long time and I read it kind of in preparation for the series coming out. And I was really, I was really surprised by how relevant the book feels to read now, you know, the, a lot of the details that she talks about feel a little bit different, but, but the fact of using details of talking about, you know, the, the dish towels or the roads in Cambridge, just having details made it feel really resonant. And I was eager to see if they kept the same references or updated it kind of how that felt different. What did you think about the fact that this was going to be on Hulu? Did you, you're a TV reviewer, right? Did you have any feelings about Hulu or? Um, no, I mean, I, I, um, I, you know, before I found out how it was going to be re- released, I was a little bit concerned about the idea of whether it was going to be released all at once, because I think I thought before watching it, and I definitely think now this is not a show to binge watch, <laughs> um, just because it would be so dark. And it, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, coming out the way that it did on Hulu, it worked really well. Well, so how about Beth? Uh, what do, you, do you have anything you want to follow up on anything that Sarah or Charlie were saying? Well, I mean, both of them really worded it perfectly. I think as reviewers, we go in with a, a critical eye and we're able to kind of take a step back from the emotional impact of the source material because we have to look at it critically. Uh, so when I was watching the show, I was making sure to note the different references and and all those different things. But, you know, if I were watching it just by myself at home, I probably would have been a total wreck by the end of it, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> well, right. So it sounds like everyone agrees that this show is really emotionally affecting. Um, yeah. I'll just, I'll just say, I, oh, I, yeah. I think this show is spectacular on pretty much every level. Um, yeah. Is that, is that, do you guys generally agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do really, I did really love it. I do feel there are some things, some decisions they made that were less than ideal, especially in terms of representation, but it sounds like they're going to be addressing them next season. So mm-hmm. uh, overall, I was very happy with it, but there were some places it could have done better. Well, yeah, and I definitely want to get to that in a little bit. I guess just for people who maybe are listening to this and are not super familiar with the either the book or the show because we do have people just listen to these episodes i'll just say maybe just a little bit about what the show is about so the show in the it's in the near future and a uh christian theocracy has overthrown the united states government and this has all been in the wake of a fertility crisis and so there are very few fertile women still around and so this theocratic government takes women who are known to be fertile and basically enslaves them and forces them to attempt to bear children for the the leader, the government leaders, the powerful government leaders. Um, are there any other important overall overarching plot details that we should get out, get out here right at the beginning here? I mean, I think that pretty much nails it. On, yeah. <laughs> nail on the yeah, head. I think that's it. <laughs> I mean, that pretty much sounds really depressing all on its own. Yeah, I think also I I think in the original book too, Margaret Atwood. Um, made references to it to a lot of the fertility stuff being because of climate change and because of the impacts that we had on the world which just makes it feel a lot more real and scary yeah. as a reader and viewer to me <laughs> right well sarah was mentioning that the main character june slash offred um she's given the name offred by this uh by this 
evil government um that she has a different personality than in the book um yeah charlie do you do you agree with that um yeah i think so i mean i think we really see her character development in a different way in the in the series i think that in the book it's much more a straightforward account of a really desperate situation and it's much more describing her relationships with people and and kind of the the world that she's in rather than seeing this personal transformation as she goes from as the Elizabeth Moss character goes from the Rachel and Leah Center to you know um eventually rebelling against um against Gilead and and yeah I think I think the changes really feel different from the book yeah and it's one of the things that makes the book feel more like a historical record. Like you really do feel like you're listening to, you know, a, a Anne Frank kind of a situation. And it's interesting to actually that I was thinking about Anne Frank this week because when they originally released her diary, they censored a lot of the sexual stuff, you know, a lot of the stuff about her discovering her own body as she, you know, developed in, in, as she was going through puberty, as she was hiding in the attic. And so it was interesting to me that that was sort of like, it kept reminding me of Anne Frank, but at the same time, even Anne Frank is not, you know, was not truly allowed to, you know, explore all of the aspects of her femininity. And, you know, we didn't even know that, that, that a whole other, you know, that it had been severely edited until a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know, one of the, I think that the reason why it feels like a historical record, whereas the, you know, the series is more exciting and it feels more like sci-fi and that's an, that's a good thing. But the book, it feels so much more like, you know, something that actually exists that is describing events that actually happened. So in some ways that's scarier and in some ways that's less scary. It depends on how you look at it. I mean, Beth, in your one of your reviews, you were talking about the voiceovers, and you weren't sure whether they were effective or not. Could you talk about that? I I didn't feel like they were effective at first, but I felt as I got used to them later on, they 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 were more ingrained into the story. I felt it was just kind of jarring because you know, as as the as uh, as Sarah was saying, you know, one of the re- reasons that the original book is so successful and impactful is you feel like you're living in her story, and the way that we tell our own stories is not the way someone else is going to tell our story. So we're coming in through, you know, through an outside perspective, looking in on this world, seeing the outside ramifications, seeing other people's stories outside of June Offred. So having the voiceovers come in and tell us things that her face is already telling us felt kind of jarring and and took me out of the moment. Elizabeth Moss is such a great actress. And there were scenes where she was silent and her face told me everything I needed to know. And then to come in with a voiceover, it's like, you're not trusting me to know what you're feeling. It's interesting. I don't know if any of you have seen the feature film. I haven't, but I, I was listening to an interview with Margaret Atwood and she was saying that they had originally in the script there were there were there was voiceover and so the actress i think it was Faye Dunaway had given her performance you know ex- expecting that there would be voiceover to fill it out and then they had decided for some reason not to do the voiceovers at all and Margaret Atwood thought that it resulted in a kind of a flat movie um because mm. you know it had been done intending to have voiceovers and then they took it out mm. um do Sarah or Charlie do you have anything else you want to say about the voiceovers no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I thought it added some of the um, kind of diaristic parts of the of the novel, but 
Yeah, I agree that, I mean, Elizabeth Moss is so powerful in it that she, you, she can communicate to get you inside of her head without needing to do the voiceover. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the other characters too. Okay. So, um, so June is now in this household run by the commander who's a powerful government official and his wife, Serena Joy and his driver, Nick. Um, how do you guys feel about those characters? Um, how about Sarah? How do you feel about Serena Joy and the commander? Um, it, you know, it's interesting because earlier when, you know, uh, I forget who said it, but someone was talking about how The Handmaid's Tale is sort of a novel that you read in high school. And I went to a Christian high school who would never, or, you know, they would never have that book <laughs> um, because it's too political. In fact, in our literature classes, um, we were given a textbook put out by Bob Jones University Press um, that had these very trite short stories that were written by staff at Bob Jones University Press because they were not, basically all literature was off limits. And so for a couple of years there, I actually really suffered without realizing it until I was older that I was missing out on great books. You know, I was reading, like all of a sudden, all of the things we were reading got less interesting and I wasn't sure why. And it wasn't till after I left that I realized uh, that I, you know, I was basically being incredibly censored to the point that everything that was produced for us was just incredibly trite and incredibly poor quality literature. Um, but so for me, you know, the commander and Serena Joy feel so much more real because I know people who are, who are exactly those people, you know, they, they may not be able to, they may not be plotting to overthrow the government. Um, but you know, in terms of the repression that Serena Joy has and, you know, expressing it through really unhealthy ways, that's something that I've witnessed in a lot of Christian circles. And, you know, thankfully I got out and I was able to rebel and completely remove myself from, from that environment. But it, you know, when you're raised that way, uh, you see so many similarities and you're like, Oh, I know that guy. You know, I mean, I <laughs> have so many stories growing up of, of people who were like that and the, the commander and the way that he justifies everything bad that's happening to other people. But you know, I actually, oh, sorry. Uh, I grew okay. up in church as well. So I completely, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I'm like, I hear your stories and I'm like, I get it. I really understand exactly yeah. what she's talking about. Yeah. When yeah. you grow up in that kind of environment, you, you can understand these characters in, in, in an interesting way. I'm not going to say a different way or a unique way. It's just a very subjective way because those yeah. are people that are, you know, that are real. And I, I spent a couple years in Texas, uh, reporting out of there. And when you're in small rural Texas, you're surrounded by this kind of rhetoric. Yeah. Well, I mean, Beth, I thought one of the things that was interesting in, in some of your reviews is how you were talking about how there's this, um, very believable diversity of opinion among the members of Gilead, right? That they're not all just brainwashed and evil, that some of them are, I mean, some of them are brainwashed and evil, but then some of them are, you know, they know the system isn't great, but it's not so bad for them. And some of them really believe in it and want to do good. And some of them are like, eh, some of them just, just see it as a means of getting power for themselves. And there, it's it's just this interesting, you know, mixture of uh, personality types and motivations. 
It really is. And I think that that's going to really come into play in season two. We're going to start seeing how Gilead crumbles and suffers from the inside. Uh, two of the most um, interesting Gilead characters to me were Serena Joy and the main eye. And I can't remember his name right now, but he was the guy who recruited Nick into becoming part of the Sons of Jacob mm. because um, Serena is a great example of complacency of this sort of woman who, who agrees to go along with things so long as she's being advantaged just enough for it to be worth her time. And then when it goes too far, it's too late for her to really do anything about it to the point where she's wearing identical dresses just along with all of them. And she can't read the books that she wrote to justify their world. And then with the man who recruited Nick, he's a great example of someone who is coming in as a hardcore believer. He is absolute. He is unforgiving and he is going to clean up the streets. And I really think he's going to play a bigger role next season. Yeah, I I thought that those backstories were of showing how people got involved in Gilead and kind of the the baby steps that it takes to go over the edge like that were some of the best parts of the series and a, a really welcome expansion on what happens in the book. I think that, you know, hearing about, hearing about Nick's backstory, it's, it, it's such a relatable backstory in a way that was really chilling. And I think Serena Joy gets a little bit of that in, in the book, if I remember right, where, um, where Offred recognizes her as she used to be a TV personality talking about, um, uh, kind of Christian family values and that kind of morphed into her ideology for Gilead. But, um, I, I felt like seeing the background of, of the, the steps towards how this happens, that, that was really well done. Yeah. I really hope we get an Aunt Lydia backstory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she is amazing and she's gotten such an expansion in the show versus the books. Um, yeah. She's like just a pure hearted believer who who I think out of everyone in the show, she actually believes the most out of anyone that they're yeah. doing the right thing. Laura, let's just explain for listeners. So uh, in the back uh, in the flashback scenes, we kind of see how June was taken out of what we would see as ordinary society and uh, kind of inducted into this this cult of this Republic of Gilead. And this involves since she's uh, uh, since she has a daughter and is proven to be fertile, she's taken to this place called the Red Center, um, where she's trained to be a handmaid. And the 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 woman uh, who oversees the, this training is Aunt Lydia. And I agree, she's just an unbelievable, unbelievable actress and unbelievable character. And just just give me chills every time she's on this on on the screen. Yeah. Um. I mean, Beth, in one of your reviews, you said that you, one of your problems with the show is that you found the timeline flashback stuff a little uh, hard to believe. You want to talk about that? The the thing that I found hard to believe, and I, I still get divisive opinions on whether or not I'm right or totally just not getting it at all, but the timeline of the takeover does not make sense to me. In the book, one, it's very vague because we're seeing it from a subjective uh, first person present point of view, but we're actually seeing how Gilead formed from the very people who formed it. And it just kind of makes everyone look like a dumbass because 
uh, because we have modern technology. We have Tinder. We have Uber. You know, you have phones. You have everything. Sons of Jacob has been building up over the past several years. They have 30 chapters by the time Nick joins. And yet, by the time June is kicked out of her office, she's never heard of the Sons of Jacob. She's never heard the word under his eye. And she has no idea why any of it is happening. And this is after the government takeover. And I just... Is it, I'm wondering if this is, and I want to get everyone's thoughts on this, is this a commentary on how we personally insulate ourselves from the problems of the real world, or is this a flaw in modernizing the story? Probably her, her Facebook algorithms have just been keeping all that stuff off of her newsfeed. So. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, <laughs> she's filtered. <laughs> that's really interesting. And that, you know, I, I, that, that makes sense that that's not something that would have been a problem in 1984 when you could have just controlled the news outlets and you wouldn't have heard heard about these isolated incidents of the sons of Jacob, you know, committing acts of terror or whatever they did before they took over the government. But yeah, yeah. that that makes sense that it's it's a lot harder to buy now. I listened to an interview with um, Bruce Miller, I think is his name, the showrunner, and I didn't get this at all from the show. I didn't think this came through at all, but he was saying that in the future there were no um cell phones because he was saying that apparently there's this weird conspiracy theory on the internet that cell towers are causing people's fertility rates to drop and he felt that in this sort of fertility catastrophe that anything that anyone even suspected was affecting your fertility would be destroyed or be torn down or you know um and so that was his rationale for why there were was not the same level of um communications technology in this future but like i said but i didn't how really is she using tinder like she's literally swiping through it you mean in, in gilead they didn't have cell phones um i guess that's not clear to me um they certainly didn't seem to have i, I remember commenting on that when i was watching i was watching the show with my girlfriends and i remember saying they don't seem to have any cell phones in gilead um so maybe he was just saying but they that, have them that, like luke has a cell phone in canada right i think that Moira gets handed a cell phone when she gets her medical ID card and all the stuff when she when she makes it across the border. So I think that might just be in Gilead. They don't have phones. Well, and also, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense to ask about it from a rational point of view, because the whole point is irrationality. Like, you know, and you have religions are, are wonderful at picking and choosing what they decide to believe and disregarding other facts. Like if they were really interested in, in fixing the fertility thing, there are a number of things that they could do to address it, to research it. You know, even just the fact that I know because I, I have read it that a woman is more likely to conceive if she has an orgasm after the man, you know, does his bit so that the, the sperm is literally sucked into the woman's body. I mean, that's, that's what happens. And so, you know, in, in this reality, they have dis, discarded a number of you know, medical facts that don't fit with their beliefs. So it makes sense that they would just decide which technology things were scary and which ones to to go ahead and, and uh, embrace. That's actually a really interesting point, because one of the things that fascinated me the most was the fact that they weren't allowed to say that men were infertile, only that women were infertile. And the only right. reason for that is because in the Bible, there is never a mention of male infertility, 
Women are mentioned as not being able to bear children, but sterility is never addressed. So for them, they're going with a hard old school interpretation of the Bible, a very literal translation. So that's why they're not doing anything to address male infertility, just going and blaming the women for it. Right. But I agree with you, Beth. Over the, like the, the comment where June says, "Who are these guys? What is under his eye? What's that?" That that does stand out to me as just the weirdest, most inexplicable part of the backstory so far. And I don't know if, if that will be explained at some in some way. But I guess I'd be curious about your thoughts about this. But the what seems to have happened is that a the the, the U.S. government has been overthrown by a um, you know a, a violent takeover, a forceful takeover. And it's not clear what happened to the U.S. military, if they were militarily defeated or if uh, some faction of them defected or anything like that. But it, it seems to me a situation like this is much more likely to come about because a leader comes to power more or less through legitimate channels and then uses, once he's in power, uses that power to purge uh, disloyal elements and so on. And the idea that, that there, there was this sort of like violent overthrow of the government struck me as a little less plausible. I don't know what you guys think about that. My understanding of it is that there was a, a, a kind of a temporary dictatorship until they could figure out that, that, that there were these terrorist attacks. And then there was a temporary dictatorship installed until they could figure out what happened. That I think there's a scene where Moira and June are talking about that. And Moira says, you know, there, there weren't really any ever, ever any terrorist attacks, not, not terrorists from outside of the country. This is all kind of manufactured. And that yeah. made sense to me as the idea that you, you know, you say, well, this is, this is temporary. Let's just have one person in emergency take, pa- take power until we can figure it out and then never seize power. Well, and, and both the series and the book are really good at, at providing that sense of normalcy, like that frightening sense of normalcy where, you know, I mean, you could say even now the things that have gone on in America are, are frightening enough that, you know, if you want to decide to believe that it's going to get worse, you know, and you don't leave, <laughs> Like, you know, you have the, uh, there are multiple opportunities, I think, in the beginning where they, you know, leaving would have been much easier and they wait and, you know, they, they get to a point where it's too late. And that to me is very identifiable. You know, I mean, it's something that, um, I mean, my boyfriend and I just bought a house and we, we thought about this. We were like, do we want to own property here? My boyfriend is Canadian. It's like, uh, I don't know. You know, and people do, you know, when they're in these situations, they think, you know, oh, well, things will get better and we'll figure it out and this will only last a few months. And there's enough of that rationalization that happens when there are, you know, less frightening things going on. And so it really does take, I think, a big shakeup to make people say, okay, this is clearly headed in a bad direction and we need to get out. I do feel like there is a difference between uh, complacency and ignorance, though, because, you know, when they're talking about the the terrorism tax and like, oh, it'll get better. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense. But they also present it as them being so unaware. They they don't even know the parties involved. They don't even know who's in power right now. Like they assume that it's the government, which could be possible. I mean, it's possible they, 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 you know, killed all the branches in secret. And then we're like, well, we're the new government now, but we're the same government all along. So 
thumbs up. We got a new Senate and House of Representatives, except not really. Well, but they mentioned that I think it's um, Hawaii and Alaska are now the quote unquote United States of America. And that's what kind of gave me the impression that there had been some sort of armed conflict and the Republic of Gilead had emerged triumphant. Like, because why would those, you know, why why would they not have taken over every state if they if this is the something the, that our current federal government has morphed into? Yeah, they do call it a war, as if there was a war between the sons of Jacob and the U.S. government. Uh, that's actually um, the Serena Joy's Martha. Her son died in the war, right. so we don't. You know, it's unsure how long the conflict lasted, how big it was, how impactful it was. But I feel like this is really a a misstep in updating it for an information age like the one we live in. I mean, Sarah, you mentioned about how just grueling the show can be to watch. Do do any of the moments from the show stick out in your mind as just like those scenes were the most uh, uh, uncomfortable to sit through or intense to sit through? I think when uh, they were all sitting in a circle around Janine and she was talking about having been like gang raped in college and the handmaids all had to point at her and, you know, say it's your fault. Like that was just like terrible to experience. Like that was just, I mean, I was sobbing. It was, it was just so awful. Um, I, I think also the scene um, where their babies are, are taken away from them um, or the scene where Janine is up on the wall ready to, you know, uh, throw herself and her baby off the wall and just the empathy that you feel for her and everyone involved um, is just, uh, it's, it's just gut-wrenching. I mean, Charlie, are there any scenes like that for you that stand out? Yeah, off the top of my head, I think that the scene of the chanting and the, the pointing, the one that, that, that's the one where Margaret Atwood makes a cameo, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that one, I mean, the closer that it felt to now, that just felt like it's representing something that insidiously happens all the time for us now and, and seeing it represented so vividly, it's definitely chilling to watch. See, Beth, in one of your reviews, you were talking about the weird birthing ceremony um, where the the wives are sort of enacting their own birthing process. Could you talk about that? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's actually one of the most fascinating aspects of the show is I feel like this was a real success on their part was how they translated and visualized the whole ceremony and birthing process. Because, you know, as we see in flashbacks, they they basically made it up so that the wives would be okay with everything. But the way they present it from beginning to end, uh, when when the handmaid is, you know, is, you know, being raped, uh, she's lying between the woman's legs. So, the you know, the wife is feeling, you know, the <laughs> every, every single movement as if she is experiencing it herself. It's it's going through the handmaid into her. And then during the birthing process, you get the same thing. The the wife is downstairs having false contractions, putting herself into this trance-like state. And then by the time the birth is about to happen, the handmaid is again between her legs, you know, putting all the movement through the handmaid into the wife. So through the whole thing, the handmaid is being told, this is not you. You are a vessel for someone else who is above you. And I felt visually that was an excellent way for them to portray it. 
Yeah. What do you guys make of the uh, when they go to Jezebel's? I thought that was one of the most just like weird and fascinating oh, parts man. of the show. <laughs> that was rough. <laughs> uh, yeah. Charlie, you want to take that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I thought it makes a lot of sense that that would be the the underside of this world. Um, and I thought that the way that the commander explained it to her, especially when, when he and Offred walk in and she, he says, who are all these people? And he says, oh, they're foreign diplomats, they're business leaders, and kind of names all the different professions that the men could have. And she says, no, you know, of course, she's talking about the women and who these people are. And I think that framework and that introduction to it as, of course, this is something that's also established for the men in Gilead, even though this is all about the treatment and the subjugation of women. I guess I should explain for listeners that so they they go to this club, this sort of private nightclub called Jezebel's, where all the leadership of Gilead does all the things that are forbidden. You know, they have like hookers and orgies and alcohol and like all this, all this stuff. Um, and 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 they mention that the women, um, the the women who've been forced into prostitution are like college professors and CEOs and things like that. People who would not, um, you know. Could, could not be allowed into the general population of Gilead. Well, it's another example of that we, you know, something that we see now where, you know, if, if a pastor's son is, you know, responsible for, you know, a, a pregnancy or something like that, they'll, they'll hurry to get an abortion for the girl so that nobody finds out about it. You know, that, that world where, well, it's okay for us because our circumstances are holy and pure and your circumstances are not. So it's not okay for you, but it is okay for us. And we see that all the time. I mean, people, you know, religions will break their own rules if it's their own constantly, but they will inflict rules, you know, stringently on other groups of people that they consider inferior I thought there was an interesting reversal right at the end where you think that, okay, the leadership of Gilead, they can just do whatever they want. They can get away with everything because they're in power. But then as Beth was mentioning, it's like, oh, no, there's this guy there. And he's a true believer and he's not going to let things slide the same way that the rest of them are. Now it was really chilling. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that is the danger with that kind of thing. You know, that you there are people who are going to be true believers no matter what. I mean, you know, the, the, the character in, in Harry Potter that, you know, sends his own son to Azkaban because he's so legalistic about, you know, what's happening and needs to sort of distance himself from this dark side. Um, you know, this, that's, that is the, the, I think, dramatic tension within religious people. You have people who are true believers and you have people who are sort of halfway there and then you have people who are just sort of, you know, taking advantage of the system to make it suit themselves, but they actually have absolutely no, you know, true beliefs in, in, in that system. I thought that was really one of the interesting views kind of behind the curtain of Gilead when there's the tribunal and the commanders all convict uh, Commander Putnam, who had had an affair with his handmaid, Janine, and and that it's it's not really a it's not a slap on the wrist. They you know they <laughs> cut off his arm and they really yeah. take it seriously. And it, it that seemed to me like um like the 
the June's commander, Offred's commander, really saw that as, oh, this is, everyone's taking it very seriously. There's this kind of groupthink that gets really, really dangerous even within that. Right. But at the same time, he receives anesthesia. You know, he gets his hand cut off in, you know, this sterile environment where he doesn't have to feel the pain of, of this happening. Whereas, you know, with a handmaid, you know, you, you, it's, it's more of a, you're going to get publicly stoned. You're going to feel everything. You're going to be tortured. So it's interesting that even though they do have, you know, laws and, and, and rules for the elite, when the elite do break those, the punishments are not going to be nearly as severe. I mean, there is the scene though where, um, I think it's off Glenn is subjected to female genital mutilation. Yeah. And that, that does happen in a hospital environment, yeah. which makes it, it's really, it's just so oh, squicky just seeing these um, old timey fundamentalist religious things in a medicalized yeah. setting. Yeah. Well, they still need her. They still need her, you know, functioning uterus. So it's totally fine for them to take off the part that you don't need in order to conceive. Yeah. I mean, like you guys are saying, it's just such an emotionally affecting show. I mean, and not just in a disturbing way, but in a, um, what, like a hopeful way as well. I mean, the the scene where um, Luke finds out, where Luke gets um, June's message, which is, um, you know, I love you so much. Save Hannah. Like, I can't even say it now without getting yeah. choked up. I mean, it's so, God, I was just bawling. It's beautiful. During that part. Yeah. Um, are there scenes like that that stick out for you guys about thing where, where sort of hope shines through or you you get like some, find some sort of happiness or something in these. Um, well, yeah. When Moira uh, crosses the border and Luke is there cause he lists her as family and that takes her, you know, she's taken by surprise, you know, and it's, it's such a good example of the ways in which I feel like the series isn't, you know, better or worse than the book. The series just feels to me like an expansion on the book. And you get these wonderful moments that you don't get to have in the book because the series is really taking the world building as far as they can and say, well, we, you know, she's created this world. We might as well explore it and explore what happens to other characters. And, you know, seeing, her see be surprised to see Luke there uh, was really wonderful. I was really struck by those moments that when Alfred was able to find that kind of solace, even in her isolation too. I think, you know, when she finds the, the carving in the closet that the handmaid who was offered before June was offered left there, the Nolitete Bastardes, Carborundorum, um, the don't let the bastards drag you down, that kind of finding uh, solace and support and community, even though she is still so isolated. I, I found a couple of those moments that, um, you know, when she's um, kind of sitting with, with the music box, some of those introspective moments that Elizabeth Moss just communicates so well of, yeah, um, yeah her really finding solidarity, even though she's still stuck. A really good one of those was uh, the opening scene in the episode after she first had sex with Nick. 
like it opens up on her and she has just this joy, this secret joy on her face, knowing that she did something that she is not mm-hmm. supposed to do in this world, but she wanted it and she took it for herself. Because yeah. one thing that's really interesting in Gilead is what they value versus what they need. And they, they value fertility and they value you know, these, they, they value these women for their fertility, but they need to also keep them in line and keep them in control, which is why more educated women were going to Jezebel's because they couldn't be controlled in that way. So they were being punished for it. So when Offred gets that one chance, you know, that first chance to really do something she's not supposed to do, that moment, just like, I was like, yes, thank you. You did a good, <laughs> good for you. <laughs> What did you guys make of the pop music, um, over, you know, overlays on some of those scenes? I think it's a, it does a good job of bringing it back to bringing us back to the present, you know, and, and reminding us that this is all happening in the modern world. I felt like some of them were good and some of them were a little cliche, like ending the first episode with You Don't Own Me. It's like. Yeah, we've heard that song like a million times being used in very similar situations. But when they had White Rabbit, when she entered Jezebel's, while it was a cliche song, you know, oh, it's Alice, she's falling down the rabbit hole. The way that the scene moved with it was so effective, it just took my breath away. Yeah. Um. Beth, you were saying that, you know, the, in this, it was reminds me of the scene where they're trade, where the Mexican delegation is trading for the handmaids. And you were saying you thought it wasn't clear how global this fertility crisis was. It seems to me it must be a global fertility crisis or else they wouldn't need to resort to such just insane things. Or do, do you not agree with that? I Honestly, right now, I'm not entirely sure because right now, the only impact that we've seen is in North America. We've seen the U.S., we've seen Mexico, and we've seen Canada, although we don't really know if they're having the same crisis. I honestly, right now, I don't know if it's something that's in that area or if it's something more widespread because one of the excuses that Gilead gives is uh, birth, the overuse of birth control and abortions were causing infertility, although that could have been a way to just, you know, shame women. Uh, they also mentioned the environment and climate change, or, or it could have been a bomb because we have, you know, the wastelands, you know, the colonies in the middle of the United States. So, Honestly, right now, I think it's unclear whether it's spread beyond the North American continent. Um, How about Charlie? What's your what's your impression of what the world is like outside of Gilead? My impression is that it's a global fertility crisis because it seems to me like otherwise it just seems so unlikely that this is where it would have ended up if it wasn't a global fertility crisis that. you know, if, if people in other parts of the world were having no problem conceiving that there'd be something about importing people in from, from other countries or, you know, even that Mexico would, um, be more interested in having more lax immigration policies with Sweden rather than figuring out how to trade for handmates. Um, it, That's a really yeah, I point. guess we don't know, but it, I really, I assumed that it was a pretty global crisis. Mm. I guess this gets us into, um, Beth, what you brought up earlier about um, the representation on the show. You want to talk about that? 
Yeah. So one of the decisions that, that the showrunner made, and, and I understand the decision in theory was to, uh, remove race as a, as a factor on the show. In the books, it's, it's not completely explicit, but there is the heavy implication that they are engaged in eugenics, that they are trying to create a white race, that they're focused on Caucasian people, and that people of color are being sent to the colonies or are being not being used as handmaids to increase fertility. Now, the reason that they chose to remove this factor is because they wanted to be able to cast actors of color without race being a, uh, without them being cast for their race, which I completely understand. But the problem I had with it is, is that Christianity and eugenics have a complex relationship. There is a history of, you know, similarities between religion and, and white supremacy and discrimination against people of color on the basis of religion. I mean, the Bible was cited to justify segregation in the 1950s. So completely removing race entirely felt really weird to me because it created this weird post-racial world that we in no way live in and we're not going to live in by the time Gilead's around. So I just... I really didn't care for it. Uh, Sarah, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's it's an expression of, you know, how a religion can decide what to include and what not to include. I mean, I think that, you know, in this particular um, expression of Gilead in the series, I could actually see them, you know, the 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 commander and Serena Joy and everything thinking of themselves as living in a post-racial world to simply decide not to care about these things as if they're doing, you know, the world a great favor. And so it, it you know, it might actually be part of the narrative to, you know, let, let's pretend like this isn't an issue and let's just focus on fertility and, and actually get to a place where, you know, you can uh, commit more atrocities because at least you're not doing X, Y, and Z. You know, and I think we see this in uh, various religions that will, you know, um, decide that they're suddenly okay with something that they've been against for a long time because they realize that there's uh, political advantages to that or that, you know, you'll see denominations change in in terms of what they uh, value and what they don't, like the Catholic Church's uh, stance on homosexuality and stuff like that. I was struck that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think any people in positions of power in Gilead are not white. And to me, that made it, that, that was helpful for Bruce Miller, the showrunner's case that, um, you know, if there's a fertility crisis, then fertility trumps everything. It, I found it believable that, the commander and Serena Joy and, you know, when there's that council of commanders, they're, they're all white men and that they would find it, you know, that there's this twisted logic that, well, if the fertility crisis is so bad, then we'll use women of color in the way that we need to use them. But we certainly won't. They're not one of us. We would never allow them to occupy positions of power. But if they're desperate enough that they would use them as tools. See, but I would have liked that. I would just like to have seen that mentioned. I would have liked a couple of sentences about, you know, because the thing is, like, much as there are pockets of different belief in Gilead, 
you know, saying that we're past race isn't going to make racism go away. Racism has been around for hundreds of years. There are going to be pockets of people who are still going to have those prejudices. And I feel like there's a difference between pretending it's not there and actual erasure. And I feel like in the series, it was actual erasure because they're creating this world where it's just, it's never even brought up. And I feel like that was the wrong way to do it. Even if they just had a couple lines of, yeah, you know, we know in the past we there, you know, race has divided us, but we're, we're, we're going to work to move past this for the good of everybody. Then I think it would have been a little more understandable, but they simply just pretended it never existed. Well, it's like, it's like that scene in, um, when there's the Mexican delegation and they show all of their little children and they come running out of the room all at once, you know, giggling and happy. And it's all part of the propaganda machine. And so I, I feel like, you know, they're, they're trying to say that, you know, we, you know, yes, they're lying. Uh, but that that's totally part of the propaganda of Gilead is look at these, you know, children of color running and playing together. Look what we've achieved. Look at what we've created. And that kind of racism is easy to believe would happen in Gilead where fertility trumps everything. Yeah, I agree with. Um, I agree with Charlie that I think that the fertility would trump um, everything else in this situation. But I, I agree with Beth. I think it would have. I agree with you that I think they should have mentioned it. I, it seems to me. You guys can tell me what you think about this, but it seems to me that the leadership might, because of their own interest in everything, as, as Sarah was just describing, would have this this more sort of accepting view, but that the rank and file like brown shirt type guys with their black fatigues and guns that it's hard for me to believe lots of those guys aren't racist. And yeah. there maybe should have been some acknowledgement of that or, you know, some expression of that at some point in the show. Yeah. And I, I know that people have talked to the showrunner about this and he said that, that he's going to look into it and, and, you know, meditate on it and look into it for next season to not so much like bring race into the conversation, but rather to uh, acknowledge it in a way that, that the show didn't before, which I think is a, is a healthy way to move forward. Mm -hmm. uh, so are there any other scenes you guys want to mention as favorites or scenes you didn't care for or anything like that? I love the scene where they all decide to, uh, not stone Janine. <laughs> like that's definitely something that, you know, was a, uh, an addition in the series and that moment of their realizing their power if they all do the same thing and they all have this united, um, front and it's poetic that that is what they choose to come together for that, you know, that they are really a sisterhood and that they are all in this together. And as much as, you know, Janine was sort of an annoying character for some of them because she kind of lost her mind and, um, you know, was definitely a little bit nuts. Um, and understandably so the fact that they all came together for her and were like, no, not a single one of us is going to achieve this and, and how it totally broke, you know, the, um, uh, Aunt Lydia, she had absolutely no idea how to handle a situation like that because they're used to controlling people through groupthink. They're used to, well, we can get, you know, these people to gang up on this person. And usually that's the way groupthink works. Usually it's very effective. And so it had to be a pretty powerful, no, she is one of ours, uh, for them to, you know, all decide that they can't do that. I thought that was such an elegant takedown of Aunt Lydia too, that it wasn't, yeah. 
you know, it, it wasn't this angry, enraged rebellion. It was this very quiet, docile of Alfred yeah. saying, I'm sorry, Aunt Lydia, yeah. and then dropping her stone and all the other handmaids doing that same thing. And I thought, I mean, Anne Dowd did such an amazing job in the whole series, I thought, as Aunt Lydia. And in those, in those scenes, particularly where, you know, she had to, she had to blow the whistle even when it meant turning against one of her girls and that she really took this protective stance, um, this, this matronly role towards them. And then they kind of deferentially told her that they couldn't do the thing that it seemed to me that she, she thought was wrong. Also, she thought it was wrong to stone Janine. And um, yeah, I thought that whole scene, especially her performance was really beautifully done. Yeah. And it was really interesting to see the the next scene that followed it. And, you know, I might be reading a little too much into this, but I was really, when I was watching the show, I was really looking for biblical references into biblical mythology. And I felt like when they were walking down the street, they were like this river of blood, this plague that was, you know, getting ready to infest all the different homes, which is very much mm-hmm. like Moses, because the first plague <laughs> is the river of blood. So you have offered in the front, she's Moses, she's got her. <laughs> she's got all these yeah. handmaids behind her. And I felt like that was kind of a really big symbol for where they're going to be next season, kind of spreading out and, and, and infecting Gilead. Yeah. After all, they're, they're there to free the slaves. <laughs> well, this is, yeah, we should say, because this um, first season ends where the book ends basically. And so mm-hmm. for season two, they're going to have to construct a lot more of the story. Um, yeah. Apparently, Bruce Miller has been talking to Margaret Atwood, and they've kind of been brainstorming ideas for where the story should go. But um seems like uh, June is part of the resistance now. Or what do you guys think? Uh, what do you guys sort of imagine or hope is going to happen in season two? I think we're going to see a lot more of the world of Gilead outside of Cambridge. You know, we really in the first season have either seen inside of Cambridge or... Um, or, or the kind of the direct route through the Northeast to get to Canada. And I think it would be really interesting to see what the colonies are like, um, you know, to see enclaves of people who are surviving as part of the resistance in different parts of the country. Um, I think kind of getting, you know, branching further and further out from June's original narrative. Are there, are we meant to understand that there are other commanders and other handmaids in other parts of the country or are they own, are they all concentrated in Boston? Well, they've talked about different districts. Yeah. Uh, there have been mentions of them that were, there were uh, some Marthas that were rebelling in other districts and they had to get, you know, quote unquote, put down, which is a horrible phrase to use about people. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so there are other areas. I don't know how widespread it is, but I, I'm I'm guessing it's kind of similar to the 13 districts from Hunger Games, where it's like the Northeast into the Appalachians kind of thing, you know, spreading into the Midwest. But then once you get further west, you have the colonies. But I, I honestly don't know at this point. Hopefully we'll find out. And, but you, and you think every district has its own cadre of handmaids. Oh uh, yeah, there's you know, they gathered all the fertile women. I'm sure that there weren't they weren't all in Boston. I'm sure I'm sure there were some <laughs> in South Carolina. I think so because I think when they bring all of the children out when the Mexican ambassador comes, they say these children were all produced in our district. So there must be other districts that are producing children. So there yeah. must be other handmaids. Yeah. I mean it's it's actually kind of fascinating to think about what 
certain parts of the U.S. would look like as Gilead. I mean, I can't really imagine San Francisco under Gilead rule. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, I kind of hope to see some of that. I mean, one of the beautiful things about this series is that, you know, for those of us who love the book, it's like, you know, the book still feels very small. Like, you know, it, you just are given this very tiny window into this world. But nevertheless, she still did, you know, Atwood did such a great job of uh, creating the foundation for this world building that of Gilead. And so, you know, the showrunners could do several seasons of this if they, you know, go about it in a right way and they really think about it and they make connections to our world and, you know, get creative with it. So I really hope that they, you know, continue to make it as good as, as the first season was. So is June not going to be a handmaid anymore or is she going to be undercover or like what's happening now in the story? I'd like to see her be in like an underground railroad situation, you know, like I want to, I want to know what the underground in Gilead looks like. And so I'd love to, you know, see that and, and see her be a part of that. I'm really hope one of the things I'm hoping, and this is, you know, kind of a small detail, but I'm really hoping that, um, June's mother is involved somehow and that the two of them get to meet because she's a big character in the book and she's been slightly mentioned in the series, but more as just kind of a background character, but one who's connected and who's involved because the really interesting thing about June and her mother was it was about second wave feminism versus third wave feminism. And now that we're entering fourth wave feminism, it would be an interesting way to kind of see the different generations. And I'm hoping that June's mother is involved in the resistance and therefore connected to, to June as she you know gets to freedom. Yeah. What does the book say about June's mother? They they have talks and fights. Uh, her her mom is is again second wave feminist, so it's very much about women's lib. You know, nineteen seventies. You know, fighting for equal pay for equal work. Whereas uh, June is is more. We've got equal rights for the most part. So you know, I I just want to do my thing. These are flashbacks. This is from yeah. These are fl memories she has in the book. Okay. Her mom also, I think, really objects to the, in that second, third wave, she, she really objects to June's traditional gender roles in her family of, of, you know, being monogamous and married and having a child. And those are really interesting conversations between June and her mom, too. Yeah. Have any of you guys been following just uh, reviews or online reactions to this show? Do you have any sense of what kind of how how the, how people are responding to the show? Mostly just the sort of guttural reactions. I mean, you know, my Facebook page is like, you know, I am happily living within a feminist filter bubble. And so my Facebook is, you know, tons of feminists just going, oh, God, last night's episode really killed me. And it was really hard to watch, but I'm glad that I did. And so... You know, I'm not really connected to to the people who would find uh, anything objectionable with the show on that level. I, I think there's a real difference I've seen between how women, you know, how they react to the show and how men react to the show. With women, I've yeah. seen one general reaction for the most part. It's, oh, my God, this is really scary. I can imagine this happening. This is really terrifying to me. And guys have one of two reactions. One how can you think that this is feasible? This seems totally unrealistic or, oh my God, 
what? This seems so weird. <laughs> like men don't, men don't really understand that this, these kind of fears are f- women fears. Like, you know, when men are afraid, they're afraid they're going to get, you know, beat up in an alley or, you know, they're not going to get to save the day or, you know, you, you might be able to speak better to I than, than to other relatable male fears. <laughs> but for women, we're afraid of our power being taken away because, you know, that's something that's happened over and over again for thousands of years. Women's power has been taken away by largely men who who don't understand or don't want to understand what we're capable of. So having our power be taken away, being used for our fertility instead of truly respected for it and given freedom to do what we want with our lives and our bodies is a really realistic fear. And it's interesting to see men kind of try to to juggle and grasp that. Well, yeah, and Atwood has said that when she started writing it, she was very concerned with making sure that everything in the book had already happened or was happening in history at some point in some place. And so it is not irrational for us to fear this, given that these are things that every single thing that was in the book, at least, uh, are things that you can find in other cultures or in our culture in different time periods or in our culture in the present, you know, I mean the LDS communities in Utah. I mean, the, these are, these are all things that are happening on some level. Uh, so, and things that, that human beings have actually experienced. I mean, Sarah, you mentioned that you thought that this, that this show is coming at this really sort of opportune political moment. Do you want to speculate yeah. about what sort of impact the show is intended to have or could possibly have on affecting the political conversation in this country? Well, I hope that there's, you know, uh, I hope that, I hope that it's not just liberal feminists who are watching it. You know, I, I really genuinely hope that for whatever reason, uh, there are people who would be drawn to this show who are not necessarily already on board with, uh, the, you know, the messages that are underpinning, uh, the story. And, you know, with anything like that, you would hope that, uh, that, that people would pick up the book who, you know, perhaps, came from more fundamentalist families and, and maybe need to hear the message. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that I, frankly, you know, my, my parents came out as, as Trump supporters a few months ago and it was, it was terrifying to me, even though it didn't necessarily surprise me. And I wish that my mom would watch this show and I doubt that she will. Um, <laughs> I have no real way of knowing it, whether she will or not, because we don't really talk very much, but, you know, I, 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 to me, I grew up in, in a world very similar to this. And so it's very clear that this kind of thing could easily happen. And so, you know, I just hope that this is not just a show for, you know, the, the proverbial choir. I mean, you were saying, though, that in the environment you grew up, that nobody assigned The Handmaid's Tale books or reading your classes and things like that, right? So it seems yeah. that they were probably not watching the show either. I would think so. I mean, you know, you, you never know because some people like have a, um, you know, they, somebody might just have happen to have a Hulu uh, subscription. Like that's the they they might stumble across it and find that it looks interesting. I mean, it's more of a if you know. I remember when the Harry Potter books came out. You know, there were Christians who were angry at Harry Potter and banning it and saying it promotes witchcraft because to them witchcraft is a real thing and therefore scary and therefore our children need to be protected. So, you know, that those worlds very much operate in terms of 
am I allowed to read, to have my children, you know, read this? Am I allowed to have my children watch this? That kind of thing. Uh, but stuff does slip through the cracks. I mean, I grew up on Star Trek. My parents had no idea it was as subversive as it was. <laughs> and it was, you know, a beautiful part of my childhood that, you know, I've talked to you about this before. <laughs> so, you know, things can slip through. And if, honestly, if anything can slip through, it is going to be the art. It is going to be the stories because the rhetoric is already so dividing. Uh, so, you know, the stories, I think, are, are the thing that really, if anything, has the power to penetrate that those kinds of ideologies. I think The Handmaid's Tale provides these really visual symbols for expressing that, too. I mean, even the way that um, earlier this week, the, the women who dressed in the, the red gowns and the handmaid's bonnets in front of the Capitol building in D.C. to protest the, the health care bill, I think, yeah. you know, I imagine that if you if you were a kid in a sheltered household and you saw that on the news on TV or you know saw that on the internet or something that is a really visually striking thing to prompt conversation and to ask your you know what is this why are they dressed like that why is that like that TV yeah. show um and just by bringing those opinions into the having that clear visual symbol like that can be powerful yeah uh, I mean Beth do you have anything you want to add about what sort of impact you think this might have well, I, I mean, like like the other ladies were saying, I, I do feel that in some ways it does end up preaching to the choir because a lot of people who could get a lot of really great perspective out of a show like this are are probably not going to watch it. But, you know, you could argue that they're the ones who should be watching it the most. I mean, one of the things, for example, that I thought was so successful about Get Out was that it wasn't about these, you know, these white people living in the South, you know, this traditional racist, you know, Southern pride group. It was people in New York. It was so it was liberals who yeah. were, you know, and it was when I watched it, I, I didn't know that, that 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 was the story. And it really took me aback. But I actually came out of it really thinking hard about the things I do, the things I say that I might not even be aware of. Aware of. Mm. And I feel like people who who are okay with, you know, restricting access to birth control on insurance, even though women are paying into insurance, uh, people who think that it's okay to limit access to abortion, to close Planned Parenthood clinics, to remove maternity care and pregnancy as essential health benefits when it's literally creating life that we're bringing into the world, the life that The Handmaid's Tale values so greatly. I feel like people who are are enabling that, who are promoting it, or who are simply sitting back and letting it happen are the ones who need to see the results in something like this the most. Yeah. I feel I feel like with Get Out, like I feel like a lot of people would go to that not knowing that there was any sort of message in it. They're just like, oh, I've heard this is a really good movie. I'll go check it out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> whereas I feel, whereas I feel, and so that's really effective then, because then you are not just preaching to the choir. But I feel like The Handmaid's Tale is so known as kind of a feminist work that I I, I don't know how many people. I never are heard of it until I got out of the until I got out of the the very mic small microcosm that I was raised in. Okay, well that's interesting. So <laughs> so we need a we need a plot to get. Sarah's mom to watch The Handmaid's Tale. Like, uh, <laughs> need to like install a computer virus or something that so she <laughs> clicks on. Uh, 
there was actually a really funny joke during the whole Wonder Woman only screening where men were like, why can't we get our own screening? And so someone was suggesting, okay, invite them all to a men's only screening, lock the door and show them the first five episodes of Handmaid's Tale (laughs) and do not let them leave. I was like, hey, you know, that might be effective. They would like it, but hey. That's hilarious. I also just feel sort of, I mean, I, I feel like the show is so good and also has this important message. And I feel like a lot of people aren't going to see it because it's on Hulu. And I don't I don't know how many, how widespread Hulu subscriptions are. Do you think there's any chance, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe more people have Hulu than I am appreciating. But do you think there's any chance that this might end up on Netflix or something at some point where more people maybe would see it? I mean, we have Apple TV. So, so for us, it was pretty simple to just add the Hulu app. You know, it was like, we have the Netflix app, we have the HBO app, and we just, we added the uh, Hulu app so that we could watch this show. I, I feel like networks like um, Netflix, Amazon, even even HBO back in the day, you know, all it takes is, you know, one or more really dynamic shows to increase their presence. I mean, Amazon did it with Transparent. Um, Netflix yeah. has done it a number of times, most recently, uh, with Stranger Things. That brought them a huge audience that was not expected. And in this case, I, I feel like Handmaid's Tale has opened the door for Hulu, but Hulu is definitely running behind the other networks in terms of their, uh, their success in, in original programming. Uh, Charlie, what do you think? I don't particularly know if it, you know, I, I, I would love for more people to see this. I agree that it, unfortunately, it likely is a little bit of an echo chamber audience. Um, but it's such an important show for more people to watch. I hope that, I hope that a lot more people are able to access it. I mean, Beth, you were just mentioning this a little bit, but I mentioned that there, you wrote this post called 10 Real Laws Straight Out of the Handmaid's Tale. You want to just say a little bit more about that post? Yes. So uh, I looked into real laws and regulations and court orders that bear striking similarity to either things that are in The Handmaid's Tale or similar restrictions on women's rights, things we don't even know about. Uh, They include uh, how a North Carolina loophole from a court order allows, uh, says that if, if a woman consents initially, she can't take it back. Uh, which has been around for a long time, multiple efforts. Uh, there's uh, another one where in Carmel by the Sea, California, you have to get a permit to wear heels <laughs> because of the sidewalks. They say you're going to trip and fall and hurt yourself. And is, and is then, that in for- is that enforced? Are they actually handing out tickets to people not, for no, high not heels? really. <laughs> but they're not getting rid of it. That's the whole, that's the thing is that some of the laws are are on paper and not really enforced. Like there are still a couple laws against living together before marriage, and you know, especially in states where same sex marriage wasn't legal until you know the supreme court said that you know said that it was you know that basically meant you know if you were living with your lifelong partner then it was illegal they're on paper they're not enforced but they can be at any time like in a couple states they have trigger laws for if roe v wade is overturned they can immediately make abortion illegal in their state at that very moment if they choose to how did you go about research? Like, how did you find out about those different laws? A lot, a lot of researching. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, it's it's really just looking at how, you know, it's it's 
honestly just looking at archives of of where states are, where they've been, and especially when in terms of these older laws, like the Carmel by the Sea one is from like the 1920s, and just kind of looking at the archives and, well, is it still in place? And, you know, most of the time, they've actually, you know, changed it, thank goodness. But in some of those cases, these sexist laws still exist. I think in one town, they have one where if a woman is driving, she has to have this giant flag on the back of her car, like to warn people that a woman is driving. And this is real. And this really exists. They never enforce it except as a joke. But for a little while, I'm pretty sure they did. Wow. God, that's yes. crazy. Yep. That's in the United- good old US of A. I got to clear out those laws. Just like sweep the corners clean of these. <laughs> See that, and people have tried for a really long time, but, you know, there's, you know, the traditions or, you know, they just don't think it's worth their time. But the really scary thing about them is these laws are real. And if one day one of the states that says you can't live together before marriage decides to enforce it, then everyone who lives together before marriage could be facing jail time because it's already a law. Wow. Um, I mean, Charlie, do you want to, um, you also, um, wrote recaps of uh, a lot of these episodes. So I was just curious if you wanted to say anything else about just what that experience was like, or do any of those posts stick out in your mind or just what was it like as an experience reviewing the show? Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the, some of the most interesting parts to me were the parts where it hit really unexpectedly close to home, especially because when they were writing and developing and producing the show, you know, Trump had not been elected yet. It, um, all of these really clear, um, analogies are pretty accidental. And to me, I think it was episode eight where it's really about, um, Nick and this idea of, of complacency and kind of if you go along with what's happening, then you, you know, if you don't fight it, you're a part of it and you're actually enforcing it. And this idea that you can kind of feel, you know, it's not happening to me. It's not directing directly affecting my life yet. Um, and that you can kind of slip into that and have that, um, be your stance and, and allow you to not rebel. And I think that tracking how different characters kind of moved in and out of rebellion through the show and the way where, um, you know, Nick really got drafted into being part of the Sons of Jacob or um, how Afka and Alexis Bledel's character, she was really rebellious and then she really lost her lost her fire and then found it again at the very end or the way that Moira kind of questioned her, her ability to rebel and kind of tracing these characters back and forth week by week like that was really interesting. Well, I mean, when you say that... Um... You you know that the the showrunner didn't intend it to be about Trump, and because it was before that, I guess were you reading interviews with the showrunner, or were you doing sort of background research on how I, the I show actually was I interviewed Bruce Miller and Margaret Atwood before the I, I wrote a story interviewing them before the show started, and I asked Bruce Miller about you know whether he anticipated Trump winning or whether that factored into the writing process, and it was you know a year ago there was certainly still an aura of fear in the us about the election and what was happening in the country but certainly not in the way that if you had written the show starting in january it would have been really different i think and i feel like it's 
I I do feel like it, it does. We do tend to get wrapped up in the, in the Trump. In, is this Trump? Is this not Trump? Because these laws are have been enacted by in the states for several years. Uh, like for example, I mentioned I was in Texas. I was working in Austin when the when the Texas ha- Senate passed uh, the bill to you know severely impact abortion access, including forcing Planned Parenthoods to close if they didn't meet certain emergency room regulations, which was solely for the purpose to force them to close because they couldn't afford to renovate. States have been restricting a- access to uh, abortion, restricting access to to birth control for, for years now, uh, mostly on the state level. So Trump is kind of a, a, a figure to represent all of that. But regardless of whether or not Trump was elected, these laws were still going to be putting in place. We're just seeing a bigger national conversation about it than perhaps we did beforehand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's really interesting, Beth, because I'll say that, you know, I follow a lot of um, I'm involved in a lot of atheist, rationalist type communities. And you see this picture of of some of these dangerous things that are happening, like um uh, non-Christians being harassed and threatened within the U.S. military, things that the supposedly liberal media, you just never see. I never see them anyway. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I just totally believe you when you talk about, you know, these these problems of the sort of creeping religious influence on our society that just does not get these, the um, attention that it warrants, I think. But it kind of goes into the themes in the show and, and what, what, uh, what the other ladies have been talking about. It's like, if it doesn't affect me, then I'm not really going to pay attention to it. You know, states that have been passing these laws are not, you know, they're not, they're conservative states. They, you know, they impact millions and millions of women. But, you know, when I, you know, I live in Illinois right now and, you know, okay, well, I mean, it's not going to affect me. So if we are not directly impacted by it, then I think we're more apt to not notice that it's happening. Um, I'm also just curious, Charlie, just what was it like interviewing Bruce Miller and Margaret Atwood? Was that a phone interview or face-to-face or? It was a phone, two phone interviews. Yeah. Uh, Did anything, I don't know, anything funny or memorable happen uh, in those interviews? Um, It was really interesting to talk to Margaret Atwood about whether you know, there have been all these different adaptations of Handmaid's Tale since Margaret Atwood wrote the book in the 80s. And it was really interesting to talk to her about how she thinks that the adaptations really become relevant in a way that suits their time. Like there was and um, the the movie, which came out right around the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89. And the, um, you know, she wrote it in Berlin. And so that really, you know, that that really affected how she wrote about it. And um, there was a, there was an opera of The Handmaid's Tale, I think, that, um, was put on in 2001 that really tried to be modern and it had all these kind of apocalyptic images, including an image of the Twin Towers falling and they had to change it, <laughs> um, later <laughs> when it, when the opera came back. And, um, she talked about how, you know, how some of the things feel, um, feel really relevant and some of the details feel different, like that, um, you know, that the way that a government would take control in the eighties would be much easier logistically just because, um, 
they could take control of bank accounts and that would, that would kind of be it. And we have all these other outlets and there are all these other pieces of our lives that they'd have to take control of now, but it still feels really plausible. You just have to change the details a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're pretty much out of time. So I think let's just go around and have just a final thought of, you know, just overall impressions of now that we've talked about this for an hour and a half, any other, uh, <laughs> anything else you guys want to add that you didn't get a chance to say? So how about Sarah? What do you, any final thoughts here? I just hope, uh, I look forward to, you know, the idea of there being a season two. And I think, you know, especially having been familiar with this story for the past five years or so, it really is, you know, when, when, when you put the book down, you don't have that feeling of wanting more because it's a terrible experience in a lot of ways. But you have that feeling of, I want to know what happened to these people. These people are very real to me. And so the uh, series is, is kind of this wonderful wish fulfillment on, on a number of levels, if you're a reader of the book where you're, you have been experiencing that for the past five years or however long it's been, uh, because you get to see you know, what happens to these characters and you got, you get to see them fleshed out a little bit more. And so, you know, I, 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 I'm sure that, that some of them may not meet the best ends and it's going to be hard to watch that, but it's uh, at least, you know, fun to explore that and be able to spend a little bit more time in, in this world that's been created. Yeah. But Charlie, final thought? Yeah. I mean, in the book after, after the ending, there's this postscript from a professor, I think a hundred years in the future, who is um, talking about um, Alfred's diary very much as a historical record and an artifact. And, um, you know, I, I hope that we, that we get to watch the second season and it feels really relevant and that people looking back on it will find it as outlandish and outdated as, as the professor in the future does at the end of the book. (laughs) And Beth, final thought. I'm actually going to elaborate a bit on what Charlie was talking about. So there is an audiobook that was released on Audible recently uh, for The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, Claire Danes uh, reads it. And I'm not a big audiobook person, but this one actually was really impactful because it when, you know, it's supposed to be a series of tapes that were discovered. So listening to it as opposed to reading it is a very different experience and a very welcome one. But one thing that it did uh, is Margaret Atwood actually wrote an expansion to that way distant future ending, where, you know, normally in the book, it ends with the professor saying, are there any questions? Well, obviously, a lot of people have a lot of questions. So it actually continues beyond that for about 10 minutes, like five to 10 minutes of just, you know, further embellishing the world, saying where things were going, people asking uh, some things like, did Alfred ever find her daughter? Now, obviously, in the book, we know she did. But, you know, I mean, in the, in the show, we know that she did. So for anyone who's kind of maybe wanting hints for where the show goes, or just wants a better semblance of the world of Gilead, and just wants a really interesting look at the source material, I would recommend the audiobook. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I downloaded that audiobook, but I didn't get a chance. I was hoping to get, listen to it before this, but I didn't get a chance. But I didn't know that there was uh, additional material at the end. Now I'll, I'll definitely have to go check that out. Get, get ready for season two. Ooh. <laughs> All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Sarah Lynn Mishner, Charlie Locke, and Beth Elderkin. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks. And that was our panel. So, big thanks again to Sarah Lynn Mishner, 
Charlie Locke, and Speth Elderkin for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.